Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is March 31st, 2014. This is episode 1324 of the Survival Podcast. And it's Monday, so this is a listener feedback show. It's also Conflicted Monday. That segment will return for its second time. I kind of introduced that segment at a bad time when I was going to be gone a lot. So it's been a while since we've had one. But uh, we'll try to make it a regular part of the show. If you don't know what Conflicted Monday is, stay tuned. As soon as we get done with the housekeeping, it will be time to be conflicted. Anyway, before uh, I get to your emails, uh, your comments, your suggestions, your thoughts, your news stories, all that kind of stuff, we'll take care of our housekeeping. Remember, if you want to send uh, content in for a show like today, email me at jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. Again, jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. And put question for Jack, comment for Jack, subject for Jack, video for Jack. You get one word followed by for Jack in the subject line. I'll know it's for this show that I do every Monday, and I will put it in my folder where I go screen through. I can't do them all. I get hundreds a day, but uh, I do try to get a varied assortment on for you guys every week. I will warn you this week, there will probably be no Friday show, at least not the Friday, Friday, Friday call-in show. I'm probably going to do two shows today, two shows tomorrow. Um, that will uh, that will get us at least four shows this week. I have to work harder in weeks like this because i got a huge event. Uh, 40-odd people will be at my house for five days. Um, but this is going to be fun. We're planting uh, hundreds of trees. It's going to be a blast. This will be the biggest TSP event ever and probably the, the biggest TSP event that ever happens. I probably will never do this many people in one place again at the same time, at least on my property. And we'll be doing more at the Ethos Farm, I think, than we will be doing here in the future. Anyway, before I uh, get to your calls, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day number one today is Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. What are you going to get from the Berkey Guy? I know this is shocking, but you'll get Berkey water filtration systems from the Berkey guy. But why get your Berkey there? I mean, isn't a Berkey is a Berkey is a Berkey, kind of like a Wilson basketball? Uh, no, I don't think so, and I'll tell you why. Sooner or later, you have to order new parts, or you have something that you're not happy with, or, you know, I don't care what you're buying. I mean, sooner or later, there's something you need. Like, you decide, oh, I want one of those things where I can see how much water's in my Berkey, those straw things that, that go on your valve like I have, and you're like, oh, I want to get one of those. And, you know, you want a person that's going to actually be there to help you make your decisions. Um, if the United States mail screws something up, and occasionally they do, you want somebody that's going to pick the phone up and take care of you. I mean, when you're doing business with anybody, if there is a person you can do business with that is like a maniac about customer service, you want that person. That's Jeff. Jeff is such a customer service maniac. One time I had him on a discussion panel. I will never have Jeff on a discussion panel again. Do you know why? I swear to God, in the middle of a discussion panel, he was on his iPad answering customer inquiries in the middle of a discussion in front of hundreds of people. It was more important to him to take care of the customer that was doing business with him than to answer the questions to people sitting in the audience. That's not good for discussion panels, Jeff, but it's awesome to have you as a sponsor. Check him out today at Directive21.com. Again, his website is Directive21.com, and he doesn't just have Berkey's. That's just his flagship product. He has some really great stuff, including the Survival Cave line of long-term storable foods. Check it out today. Next up today, HarvestEating.com. Hey, look, make cooking a life skill, and if you want to know how to do that, 
Get with Chef Keith Snow. He's awesome. He's got great stuff, incredible pasta sauces, incredible seasonings, incredible uh, podcasts, incredible video, membership program. He's got it all over at HarvestEating.com. I use his seasonings weekly here. Uh, some of you guys will be eating uh, pork shoulder and brisket. Both of them will be rubbed down with the low and slow barbecue, my, one of my favorite things I get from Chef Keith Snow, along with the steak seasoning and uh, northern Italian and the grilled chicken. Those are my favorites. What are yours? I'd love to know. Check them out today at HarvestEating.com. Next up, real quick, uh, Discount Vendor of the Day. This is a company that's not an official sponsor because I don't have any more room for sponsors, but does give a discount to members of the Support Brigade. Today, it's Mother Earth Products. Mother Earth Products is awesome. Uh, a long time ago, I discovered something called Harmony House. that these dehydrated vegetables and uh, fruits and stuff like that. And uh, once I got my vacuum canner, I'm like, this is awesome. I can put it in jars and buy it in bulk. And I found Mother Earth products that had better pricing. And the owner contacted me and said, hey, I'll do a 12% discount for you and members of the support brigade. So I brought them on. You get in great big bags. Pack it up yourself. MotherEarthProducts.com. Uh, if you could think of a vegetable or a fruit, they probably have it either dehydrated or freeze-dried in bulk. Uh, they are great for just having bulk storage of those things, or for those of you who do the meal in the jar thing, they're awesome for composing your own meal in the jar. Again, MotherEarthProducts.com. Check them out today, 12% for all for all MSB members. And on that note, if you are a member of the Support Brigade, uh, great, go get your discount. If you're not yet, do consider joining. You know, I just got a discount for people who took Jeff Lawton's PDC. Uh, it was a discount that was twice the cost of the MSB if you're not military or law enforcement or something like that. So it's really a great product. It pays for itself in so many ways. Um, if you want to join, just go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on members, and you can learn all about it. Um, and uh, again, if you are military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, your prior service, or a first responder, active duty, your prior service, like a firefighter, EMT, paramedic, you qualify for a service discount, email me with service discount in the subject line. Tell me who you are and what you're doing or did if you're prior service in the uh, in the body of the email. I need like two sentences on this, not, not like a whole book. I'm not going to read a whole book. And uh, I'll send you back a discount code to thank you for your service. It'll save you more money on an already great product. All right, with that, let's go to our history segment. Today, a name we all know. Most of us as kids played a game under this name in a pool. You might remember it, Marco Polo. Now, Marco Polo, one of the most famous people in history, uh, dies in 1324. And uh, Alex Shrugged over at TSPWiki.com has put in a little segment today uh, in 1324 called Marco Polo and the Missing Malaysian Airliner. Uh, seems like a big leap. There's actually a connection. I'll tell you about it in a second. Anyway, here's the segment. As he lay dying in his home in Venice, his friends and relatives asked him to say that it was all a mistake. Alex, I'd like you to clarify. I don't get that. Uh, and you don't really explain it here. If you could add to the wiki, that'd be great. Anyway, uh, but Marco Polo replied, uh, quote, I have not told half of what I saw, end quote. He replies and passes away at the age of 69. His famous book, The Travels of Marco Polo, became controversial but quite popular. His book will inspire Christopher Columbus to find an easier road to the Far East. And he will carry a copy of the travels on his voyage across the Atlantic and make notes in the margins. But what do you, if that book exists still, if that was put in a museum or something, I'm sure it has been. What do you think that's worth? A copy of the, the travels of Marco Polo from the 1400s, you know, uh, what, 150 years after Marco dies with notes in it by Christopher Columbus. That, that's gotta be priceless. Anyway, how's this connected to the Malaysian airliner? 
Uh, my take by Alex Shrug, who puts these together for us. As I was researching, I found a connection between Marco Polo and the Malaysian Flight 370 mystery. Netflix has been producing an original series on Marco Polo, and one of their martial arts stuntmen was on the flight. Ju Kung was making a quick hop home to spend time with his family. He's presumed dead. Aside from Marco Polo, he was the stunt double for Jet Li in many of his movies. Um, sad to hear of his demise. I do believe everybody on that flight has uh, deceased. There is a mystery there. Uh, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I'm not ready to go into it yet because I don't know enough yet. All I know is that a plane was flying, the plane is gone, and that there's a lot of different stories going around. But remember this. Conspiracy theories that arise due to facts often have a basis. In fact, conspiracy theories that arise solely due to a missing, uh, you know, the, the absence of facts, the absence of knowns, usually are tinfoil hat and utter stuff. Anyway, let's get into the uh, main topic of today's show. Let's start out with our Conflicted Monday segment. So if you haven't heard of this before, Conflicted is a great card game. Discount for you guys in the MSB, by the way, if you want to buy a deck. There's two decks now. I think a third one's due out soon. And it works like this. You have a deck of cards. You shuffle them, and a person takes a card and reads it. After they read it, they say what they would do. Everybody else in the game writes down a score from 1 to 3, actually 0 to 3, about how they feel they rated the person. And then the next person draws, and you don't rate your own answer. And at the end of 5 or 7 or 10 or however many rounds you want to play, depending on the size of your group, whoever has the highest score wins. But you also discuss it. So I would read it, I would give you my answer, then we as a group would discuss my answer before you scored me. All right, So it gets some interesting conversations going. It is called Conflicted. It does take place in a fantasy world where the end of the world as we know it has come. The apocalypse has come. The zombies have risen. It is the worst of the worst of the you know, full-on Mad Max scenarios that you're supposed to put yourself into, which is, to me, not the most realistic thing, but it is fun as a game. And it does get you thinking about survival scenarios. So here is today's Conflicted Monday segment, the way you guys play. I'm not going to tell you what I think. I will read your responses and eventually respond to some of them on the blog. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com, episode 1324, and in the comments section, leave your comment to what you would do in this scenario. Here it is. Economic collapse has happened, and the government forces are seizing all resources, searching the country for all nonconformists. You lead a well-hidden and prepared group of about 40 About a month ago, the group added a small family of four, and now that family wants to return to town, which is a government-controlled area. This may compromise the group's safety, location, and possibly their lives. How would you deal with this situation, and why? So there you go. Come to the site, um, click on the comment section, and uh, leave your comment. How would you respond to that scenario? I am wanting to say something, but by my own rules, I'm not allowed to. So let's go to your uh, first email of the day. Here's an interesting economics question, personal economics question. This is from Joe in Michigan. Joe says, is it better to owe taxes or to get a refund come tax time? My thinking is at least, if nothing else, I can get interest off the money till I owe it. Thanks, Jack, and have an awesome show. Well, let's, let's, let's examine the whole, well, if you had your money, you could be in a savings account and you could get interest on it. I'm not saying that I, I don't think it would be better that you don't overpay too much. I'm not, I'm not. But let's just, that's the classic argument. Well, if you had your money, 
You could have it in a bank account, if nothing else. You'd earn interest of what, 1%? Seriously? What is, what is, what is, you know, the, the average person's tax return is about a thousand bucks, right? I mean, that's, that's really not a bad return for most people. Now, if you run a business and all, you're, you're handling things differently, you could end up with a big return or a big bill due. But if you did have your thousand bucks, And if somehow by magic, a magical fairy farted the thousand dollars on January 1st, and you put all of it in the bank and kept it for a whole year at your 1% interest rate that most banks are paying or less now, you'd have 10 bucks. So to me, the interest is irrelevant. I don't want the pricks to have any more money than, than they need. I really don't. But I also know that, you know, I don't want a big bill. I generally overpay several thousand dollars or more a year. Now, I'm running a business, and frankly, from a cash flow standpoint, I just can't have sitting down with my accountant at the end of the year and him telling me, you got to write a $7,000 check. I, I just can't have that. It, it's so disruptive that it makes sense that I've come up with a formula for my prepayments where I just take 30% of all gross receipts and set it aside. And then once a quarter, whatever's in the account that I have set up to do that with, I just write a check and send it to the IRS. I do that four times a year. Um, that is enough that I never owe them money. They always owe me money. Uh, sometimes, again, several thousand dollars or more. Sometimes significantly more than several thousand dollars. And that money comes back, and we put it into our household, and we're able to do things with it. And so let's say it was five grand, so 50 bucks. Um To know that I'm not going to end up in a situation where I have to come up with five grand out of pocket. Now, does the government have my money and they're able to, you know what, the government doesn't care that they have my money. The government just cares that I'm a cog in the machine and I pay my due. That's all the government, the government, income tax is more about control than the government needing your money. When the government needs money, they just create money anyway. They borrow money, they create money, they don't care. Your income tax, Right? Let me tell you the purpose of your income tax. To pay the Federal Reserve its interest. And to pay the foreign governments their interest. And to pay all the interest on the bonds. If you add up the entire personal income tax in America, and you look at the interest that we pay on our debt over time, the numbers are quite similar. The numbers are quite similar. Now you'd say, well, it's not, it's not really because it's about four, 400, Uh, $400 billion in interest, and it's like $1.1 trillion um, in, in personal income taxes. But you're not accounting for the new debt. That's why, because it's interest in the new debt. So in other words, what we're doing is we're backfilling the debt. So let me give you some numbers. This is from 2009 because it's in my book, The Real Truth About Money. These are real numbers, again, from the uh, fiscal year 2009 for the United States of America. The income tax collected in 2009 was $1.21 trillion. The cost of interest on our debt in 2009 was $383 billion. The total new debt was $1.1 billion. So the new debt plus interest payments was $1.48 billion. So in other words, we took on more debt and more interest in 2009 than we paid in income taxes. And that's the whole reason the income tax exists, is to fund the borrowing and, and, and interest. That's it. Now, some would point out that we borrowed $1.1 trillion to cover spending, 
And now that's spending, you know, fed poor, paid welfare checks, etc. The key, though, is we don't have to borrow money. The government was given the power to create money when our nation was founded. Um, and I know this is hard for some people to accept, but our government could issue its own money without issuing it as debt. If we're going to have money that's not backed by a commodity anyway, why do we need a Federal Reserve system? And, and we don't. I'm getting off on a tangent, though. Let's, let's just get back to the question. My basic answer is I think you're better off paying a little bit too much in and getting a return. I really do. I think that there's so many things that can go wrong that you're almost always better off getting a couple hundred bucks back than owing a couple thousand. And, and that's just my approach, and I think you should do whatever makes the most sense for you, but I think you should think about it that way. Like, do I, do I really think that it's that big a deal that I have the interest on 500 bucks, which is like five dollars? Or did I not end up with a bill? And um, I, 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 that's just my my overall view. And I, I get all the technical reasons that you could object to it. Uh, but then in in the in the end, I always try to do what works. And and this is what works for me. I'd love to hear you guys' comments on this. Let's take another call. And from there, let's go to a gun question. David says. Uh, Hey, Jack, I got a $200 Cabela's gift card for my birthday. I'm not sure if I should get a 12-gauge shotgun or a 20-gauge. I would like to use it for deer and small game, rabbit, pheasants, squirrel, etc. What is the advantage of one over the other? Uh, now I'm using a Stevens 350 pump for hunting, and I hate it because it weighs a ton. Thanks, Dave. Um, well, let's see. One gun to do all things. Um, the, the easy answer is the 12-gauge. It's not the answer I'm going to give you, and I'll tell you why in a minute. But if you really wanted... Like the deer gun, the, and you're gonna use slugs and uh, and a gun that will just do everything. The 12. And if you're good with a 12, a 20 gauge at at knocking birds down, you'll be better with a 12. It's it's there's more shot, there's denser patterns due to the greater volume of shot. And uh, in the words of Peter Capstick, anything the 20 gauge can do, the 12 gauge can do better. Uh, from a performance standpoint, and I will not argue that. A 12 gauge is a better performing round than a 20 gauge from a terminal ballistics only standpoint. Uh, let's talk about a field performance standpoint though. If we're going to spend time in the field. Let's say that we're going to be out all day long and we're going to be chasing squirrels and rabbits and things and up and down hills and stuff like that. If I look at something like the Remington 870, one of the most popular, and you've also complained about weight, so I'm taking that into my consideration here. Most popular uh, pump shotguns in America, I would have to say, is, is the 870. Probably more popular than anything else. Mossberg 500 is up there, but I'd say the 870 is the iconic American pump shotgun. Um, a 20-gauge with a 26-inch barrel, and if you're going to be out hunting in, in the bush... Uh, I don't see any reason to have a 28-inch barrel on your shotgun. It's shorter is better. If it came standard to 24, I'd recommend that. Um, after about 20 inches in a shotgun barrel, the ballistics are the same. The only thing you get is a longer sighting plane, and that makes you a little bit more consistent with your shooting. But if you're if you are a well-practiced and disciplined shooter, it doesn't really matter. So a 20-gauge, 26-inch barrel, 870, weighs six and a quarter pounds. A 12-gauge with a 26-inch Uh, barrel weighs seven and a quarter pounds. So you lose a pound of weight right there by going with the 20 gauge. To me, if you're worried about weight, that is just a nicer gun to carry. A pound may not sound like a lot. When it's in your hands all day long, it starts to weigh a lot, especially if you're going to get into, you know, squirrel and grouse and pheasant where you're walking long distances. 
I do not believe you give up that much in killing ability and lethality with a 20 over a 12. Again, if you are a marginal shot, the 12 will be a little bit more forgiving for you. But a 20 will get the job done if you do your part. So you lose a pound there. Now, let's look at, say we're going to carry, I don't know, two boxes of ammo with us in our, our shell vest or whatever. Well, if you did that, you would, uh, you'd reduce your road by, load by about another pound. Uh, roughly. It, it, weights of ammo, depending on the shot size, density, how many ounces they shot, etc., all over the, all over the place. But if you've ever been out in the field with a box or two of ammo in a shell vest, um, and you've, you've done it both with a 12 and a 20, you could, I can just tell you, it's just more comfortable with a 20. So, since you don't like the weight of the gun that you have right now, and it's a Stevens 350, and my, Best guess is that weighs about 7.6 to 7.8 pounds, depending on how it's configured. Um, and a Remington 870 in 12 gauge weighs about 7.5 pounds as well. You're not going to be happy with the weight of the, uh, of the 12 gauge. So if you wanted to go with a 12, I'd tell you to start looking at, and you only have a $200 card, so you didn't say how much money you're going to spend on this. If you're going to spend a lot more money, you can look at some of the lightweight field models or things like that. But you can also look at some of the affordable doubles. Uh, there are some affordable doubles out there, and uh, generally they're they're lighter. Um, but I, to me, I, even if you look at that, you're going to go lighter with the with the with the twenty. Again, there there is no way that you can say that the twelve doesn't have a better ballistics package uh, and more ammo availability and greater ammo availability. But a twenty gauge. Is really got kind of a sweet spot in the in the whole makeup, and there are plenty of things available for home defense and things like that. A 20 gauge slug is every bit uh, as capable of is killing a deer as any other shotgun slug that's out there. Now, my my gut though would be to tell you to go get yourself a nice 20 gauge pump, six and a half pound, six and a quarter pound range. And to also look at NEF H&R's uh, lineup, and if you're wanting a shotgun for deer, um, look at maybe one of their single shots with a uh, with a rifled barrel or with iron sights and the smooth barrel for for slugs, and make that your deer gun. Um, you can you can get them where they can be configured with the scope or whether they have iron sights, and they're pretty inexpensive. Now you're going to pay a couple hundred bucks for that new. Uh, maybe 260, 270 with the shotgun option, with the rifle barrel or the iron sights or something like that. Um, but it's a better tool for a deer gun than a pump shotgun. It really is. Now, the other option, get yourself that nice, uh, 20 gauge 870 with, uh, with your, you know, 26 inch, uh, rem choke barrel, uh, for all your bird and small game and stuff like that. And then, you know, add on to it whenever you, because you could just use it with an improved cylinder or cylinder uh, choke tube in it and, and foster style slugs. And it'll do fine at, you know, reasonable ranges, but you want to extend the range and have a better purpose built deer weapon without spending a ton of money. Um, there's a Remington, uh, 18 and a half inch, 20 gauge slug barrel, dedicated slug barrel. Uh, it takes three inch rifled slugs. Fully rifled. It's got a cantilever on it to mount a scope. And you could have that scope mounted on that barrel, and it's going to stay zeroed whether you pull that barrel off that gun or not. And you 
unscrew the the retainer, you pull the barrel off, you take your other barrel, you shove it on, and you, you screw your retainer back on. That's it. It takes about 10 seconds to swap the barrels out. Now, that barrel sells for over 300 bucks. Um, and it's a lot harder to find a barrel like that in 20 gauge, and there's a lot less options than 12. So, if you wanted to do it all shotgun, you're back to the 12 being a better functional weapon, terminal ballistics availability. If you want it to be more what you want to carry, again, I'm back to the 20. So I think it really comes down to, are you going to deal with that weight or not? And if you don't like that weight, the 20 is the easy answer. And uh, take up reloading. And anything that you would like in a 20 gauge that's not available, you can load it yourself really, really easy. Uh, there is a, a, a shotgun loader made by Lee Reloading. That for somebody that's you know going to roll reload ten boxes a week or less and not trying to be out skeet shooting every day is fine. It's called a Lee Load All. It comes with all the bushings, which how how you set your you know your charge in ounces and and your charges in in, in drams of shot uh, powder equivalency. So everything that you need to just start reloading, other than shot and powder and wadding and sh and ca casings, is included. And it's $51.99. And uh, if you shoot much with a shotgun or you just want more versatility in your shotgun, this is the way to go. You're like, you know, Mac and, and, and uh, Lyman and a lot of other manufacturers, I uh, can't think of who else, uh, oh, Hornady, they make these awesome progressive shot shell reloaders. And if you're high volume, it's probably worth the money. But for the, the hobbyist shot shell reloader, uh, the Lee Load All is the way to go. Um, I mean, if you bought a 12 and a 20 gauge one, you've got everything you need to load both, and you're out $104 or something like that plus shipping. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna again head you toward the 20 due to the weight issue alone. Um, if you disagree with me, I'd love to hear why, and not just the 12 is better, but why is the 12 better for a person that doesn't like the weight? And what lightweight 12-gauge shotgun options are out there that will get a person down to a, a gun weighing about six-ish pounds, six and a quarter pounds? Um, and keep in mind, as weight goes down, recoil goes up. Let's uh, let's take another one. And from guns, let's go to a gardening question. Steve H. says, we're building raised beds to be used for an organic garden. What material do you think is best and gives off the least amount of toxins? We would like it to be cheap and safe, long-lasting, and minimal amount of maintenance. Uh, I know you've covered this previous shows, uh, but we're moving our food production back to our garden after surrendering a small plot of land we rented from a local council. We are looking to build a permanent raised beds for food production we like to garden naturally, no pesticides, heritage plants, organic fertilizers, etc. One of the reasons for surrendering the land was the copious amount of Roundup the neighbors would use on the shared paths. There are natural building materials we have been looking at, Uh, to build raised beds, natural untreated wood, store-bought raised beds, which are pressure-treated with safe wood preserve, uh, UPC raised beds, bricks or blocks, natural stone. Each material has its own advantages and disadvantages. The natural untreated wood will have very little chemicals, but not last as long as pressure-treated, but should the chemicals seeping from the pressure-treated into the soil be a concern, bricks and natural stone are expensive, and cement affects pH soil, but pretty much maintenance-free once in place. I know nothing of UPBC beds. Okay, any helpful advice you offer would be appreciated. All right, this is the first thing I want you to do when you come to building a raised bed and worried about any toxins in any borders of your bed. I want you to go outside, and I want you to go... <sighs> take a big, deep breath, and I want you to sit down and realize you just inhaled about 50,000 different toxins. 
that your body can deal with no problem whatsoever because you have something called an immune system. This does not mean that we should pour toxins into our body, and one of the main reasons we grow our own food is to get away from the toxins that are in our food supply. But it also means we should not be hyper-reactive, over-reactive to things like CCA, which is what they treat wood with nowadays. CCA is copper, chromium, and arsenic. In small amounts, chromium is good for you. You'll find it in vitamins you take. I can say the same thing about copper. Arsenic is a toxin at high levels. In low levels, it actually has some beneficial effects as well. So even the stuff that's in there ain't all that bad. The leaching from treated wood in multiple studies that I've, I've read is almost insignificant where we take a garden bed and we test it for some arsenic. And yes, there's some arsenic in the ground, in the garden bed, after 10 years of being surrounded by CCA lumber. But if we go, you know, 25 feet away, upgrade, so it's not from that bed, and we test the ground, there's also arsenic. There's arsenic in soil. It's a natural element. It's not Arsenic is not, just because it's toxic, doesn't mean it's something that Monsanto creates. Okay? So it's, a, and the, the levels are, the difference is so insignificant as to be irrelevant in these tests that I've read on this. So I wouldn't even hesitate to use CCA-treated lumber, which if you buy most landscape timbers and things like that, you're going to find that's what it's treated with, again, CCA. There's a guy that built a beautiful house out of, of CCA-treated landscaping uh, timbers in Arkansas, by the way. You can look that up online if you want to. Uh, and he's not dying in his house. Um, we can be hyper-concerned about things like that. So my first thing is, Do what works best for you, for you from a budget, goals, and implementation strategy. And don't worry about it. What I would not use, I would not use railroad ties or anything treated with creosote. Not just because I don't want creosote in my food, but creosote can actually inhibit growth. And I've seen railroad ties that under the certain conditions and heat and expansion, contraction, moisture, the creosote weeps out of the timber. Like, you could touch it and it's sticky. Like tar. Well, that I don't want. Alright? So, unless it's something like that, or it's something that's been saturated in some type of, like, if somebody said, well, we, we've uh, we've taken this wood and we don't want termites to get in it, so we've saturated it in insecticide. Well, that I wouldn't use. CCA, not even a concern. But I want you to consider something else. Why do you think you need borders? Why do you think for your raised beds you need borders? Now, maybe just the way you want your yard to look, you want borders, and then go for it. But when you start adding up building 10 raised beds or even 5 raised beds and putting in the materials to put borders in, it can get quite expensive. For 10 years of my life as a kid, I ran the garden for my grandfather on our property in Pennsylvania. We never had a border. And the beds were sort of kind of raised. Grass paths in between them. I would double dig them every year. I wouldn't do that again. But, you know, I didn't know at the time. I did what he told me, and it worked. Then we would build it up with organic matter and all. And, you know, by the time you were getting ready to plant your bed, your bed would come up four inches from the grass path. And the dirt didn't all run away and go off and disappear. It was fine. And when you planted it and roots got into it, it held together and... You know, you'd mulch it, and yeah, it was... So, unless you're trying to put in like 12 inches of raised bed, and even that, you don't need it, but you're going to have a rounded bed then. 
right? Really rounded. Like if you do it without borders, you end up with a bed that's like, let's say it's about four inches high in the center and tapers down on the sides. You end up like some gently rolling top instead of like a big hoogle. And you can plan into that the way you'd plan into anything else, and it's not an issue. So at least consider not spending the money on borders. Now, let's say you, I, I don't care. I want borders. I want it to look this way, or our land is a certain way, or we need to control so, whatever. We're going to do it. All right. I would say out of all the materials that you have listed, treated wood is probably the best. Now, I don't know that I would buy store-bought raised beds, which are pressure-treated. I think you could build your own from either landscaping timbers or from pressure-treated lumber for less money. And since you're considering using natural untreated wood, all right, um, that means you have the capability to do that. And I would seriously consider building your own from pressure-treated before I would buy pressure-treated pre-made kits. Now, let's say you don't care. You heard arsenic. You're freaked out. I don't want arsenic, and I, I don't want it. Okay, fine. Use untreated wood. But it won't last as long. Who cares? Who cares? If you go out and buy untreated 2x12 or 2x10, which is 1.5 by 9.5 or 1.5 by 11.5, by the way, um, and you screw that together with good heavy screws, and you build your bed out of that, you've got 5 to 10 years, depending on things. That's a big, thick, heavy piece of wood. And it's cheap. Non-pressure treated 2x10 lumber is cheap. Especially if you're going to go 4x8s, because you only need three of them to build a 4x8 bed. You cut one in half, boom, bolt it together, you're ready to go. What do you do when it falls apart? You go get some more cheap wood, and you reframe it. That's all. And I've used untreated 2x12s for more than seven years in a garden not needed to replace it. It was getting to where it probably needed it. I've seen treated landscape timber beds that are 15 years old and still holding up. So if I want a straight, flat, rectangular bed, I'm probably going with landscape timbers. I get them, I don't know what you pay in the UK, but I get them here for under $3 a piece. But it, it does add up because you have to stack them like a log cabin. And I usually go about four high. And depending on slope, that might actually be a little low in the back, a little high in the front. But, you know, and you cut them in half. You're, so you got two four-footers and two eight-footers, and you, you lose a little bit of the interior dimension from the width of the, the lumber. And I use great big spikes, and I lay them log cabin style so one end overlaps the other, and then it changes in the course. I get a great big drill, and I drill a hole just a little bit smaller than a spike, and I take a sledgehammer, and I drive a spike through them. I put them into corners, and I put a couple, and I put my first course, I get like a 12-inch spike. So I end up with eight inches of that spike into the ground. And they hold beautifully. They go nowhere. I mean, they're just bulletproof. That's the, the easiest and not real expensive way to do it. Um, and I prefer those to pressure treated like 2x12 or 2x10. Um, they'll cost more, but they'll last longer and they'll look better. PVC, I wouldn't hesitate to use it. I really wouldn't. UV protected, UV stabilized PVC. Those are probably prefabricated beds. They'll probably last 20 years. And here's how you know if something like PVC or rubber is leaching. If it ain't brittle, it ain't leaching. If it's leaching, it's losing its cohesion. 
All right, so if you have a piece of PVC that's UV stabilized, that's five years old, and you can, you, it doesn't look any different than a new piece. It doesn't feel, it doesn't react. And if you take like non-UV stabilized PVC pipe, take a piece of that and put it in the sun for a year and cut it with a pair of PVC cutters versus a fresh piece. It cuts totally different. Why? It's been, it, it's lost cohesion. Some of the things in it have come out. That's how it got brittle. But when you dig a piece of it up out of the soil that's 10 or 15 years old from an old irrigation system and you take it out and cut it because you're just removing it or you're splicing a new line into it, it's not brittle at all. If it's under the soil, it stays stable. So I don't know a lot about uh, UV stabilized PVC, but I would tell you that if it's not doing what it's supposed to do, you will know it. And again, big breath in, big breath out, 50,000 toxins just went into and out of your body and you're not dying. So don't overreact. I'll tell you this. I've had people say, well, I wouldn't garden out by the front yard because people drive cars by there and there's, there's, there's exhaust and there's runoff from the street. And I'll tell you what. You can go out in the middle of a highway divider and you can plant food. And if you grow that food under organic growing practices, permaculture growing practices, That food will be about a thousand times better for you than anything you're going to buy in the store. Probably better than a lot of things that carry the organic label. Because there's a lot of crap that organic farmers spray on their farm. Not all of you. Don't get mad. I know some of you out there, right? But commercial-sized organic farms. I'm talking, you know, 10,000-acre farms, 5,000-acre farms. Uh, what's going on in Baja, Mexico with organic carrot and celery production? These guys use things that are technically organic, But that doesn't mean they're technically good for you. I mean, organic is an or arsenic is an organic compound, right? It, it's it's not chemically produced in any way, shape, or form. It exists, right? Destroying angel mushroom is organic. It's organic as it gets. A wild growing, you know, it's not organic according to the government because it wasn't grown on an organic farm. But you get what I'm saying, right? You go out to a primeval forest if you can find one left. Find a destroying angel mushroom. Nothing could be more natural. You eat it, it'll kill you dead. So just because it's natural doesn't mean it's safe. And that's something to consider when you're making decisions about your food. And then don't overreact to it. So those are my thoughts on it. Bricks and blocks are cool. Um, natural stone. The problem with stone is that because it's like weird shaped and all, and you like pile rocks up, it looks great. But you're going to get tons of things growing in those crevices that are hard to control the edge. So like your weedy or it tears up your weedy or whatever. You can't get in there with a scythe. You know, so if you're, if you're going to go through with a small grass sickle by hand and clean up your edges on it, it's fine. If you're not going to be anal and want every little rock to show and worried about something, so you just cut the long growth off on your rocks because you're going to get a lot of growth right in those rocks because they're going to create a cool, moist environment with 100% runoff. So another way you could do rocks then is actually leave little pockets open, fill it with compost, and plant um, herbs that will crawl out and take over the border. So that way it'll help control it. But, uh, bricks and, uh, like, uh, what do you call them? Cinder blocks make great beds. But with cinder blocks, you're going to want to paint them with something. Then you're going to worry about the paint being toxic or whatever. Uh, again, just do what works best for you. Let's take another one. Let's go with another, uh, gardening food production question. Um, do I place wet cardboard under mulch when mulching around an existing tree? Background. We bought a new three-quarter acre lot outside of a small town. There are a few nice apple trees that have grass right up to the trunk. 
After listening to 1317, building the backyard orchard, I would like to mulch around the bases and out past the canopy. My question is, in order to stomp out crackgrass, I would like to lay down a couple layers of wet cardboard and would like to know if that would act as a watershed for the tree roots. Thanks for the show. I've been listening for years. Dan from Alberta. Okay, let's let's start out with something. Alberta. Cool, temperate, humid climate. Don't get too worried about these trees having enough moisture, especially established mature trees. So if you're mulching, please be doing it for a reason other than I want to make sure the trees have moisture. Because in your climate, with a mature tree, that tree's probably got a tap root as long as your leg, if you cut it off and taped it together three times. So it's, it's gonna have moisture. It, it's, it, it isn't that we can't help things with mulch, but please don't do it because you think the tree needs it. Do it because you have other ends in mind, so to speak. Okay, now next. I said, and I meant, do not put wood mulch up around the trunk of your tree. Grass around the trunk of your tree is not really a problem. Okay? There's a couple ways we can handle this. One, we can put diversity into the greens. We can plant chicory and plantain and clover and get it out of grass dominant into an herbal perennial dominated pasture mixed grass. That could be useful. Are you going to put animals under there? Mature tree, we can put chickens through there every couple weeks. They won't hurt anything. You know, if you put them in there and cage them in there, they'll scratch the roots and they'll eventually do some damage. But coming through there once in a while, aerating, pest control, that'd be great. So I really wouldn't want wood chips there if I was going to pull chickens through. You want to be nicely landscaped and start planting other herbs and stuff like that in there and turn it kind of like into a little forest garden with the apple tree being a canopy. Now the wood chips make sense. So wood chips, cardboard. The only thing you really need to do to use a cardboard barrier and get good results is make damn sure that cardboard is saturated when you first lay it down. And then put at least three to four inches of wood chips on top of the cardboard. Here's why. If it's not saturated, you can have a lot of air pockets in there. And as the cardboard dries out, you can get into a situation where the water actually does shed off the cardboard. If that cardboard is saturated, and you put that much wood chips on it, you know, when you shovel wood chips, it's, it, it's, it's, it's fun compared to shoveling dirt. They weigh so much less. But, you know, fill up a wheelbarrow full of wood chips and then pick up the whole wheelbarrow. The weight adds up, buddy. It does. And then when they get wet, they suck water. They'll weigh that cardboard down. Get surface contact with the ground. That cardboard starts to break down. If you're concerned, one thing you can do is spike your cardboard. Just get like uh, a big long spike like I was talking about for the raised beds or anything with a point, a sharp point. You, not really a knife. You want more of a round hole and you can just spike the hell out of your cardboard and that will help get some, some moisture through uh, a little bit more regularly. But boy, I've never done it and I don't know anybody that ever said it was necessary. I just know that it would work if that's a concern. But good, wet, heavy mulch. Again, make sure there's a couple inches at least all the way around the trunk of your tree. Do not stack wood mulch up against the, the bark of your tree. You can create rot in your tree, and eventually you can kill your tree. If nothing else, you can compromise its defenses and make it more susceptible to disease. But again, I would only mulch around these mature trees if you want to plant something into the mulch. Quack grass, sooner or later... It's going to find its way up through that cardboard 
and it's going to come back. It's going to happen. And this is the thing. When I do mulching, I don't really worry about grass. I don't worry about Bermuda grass. I don't worry about brome grass. I don't worry about crack grass. I don't worry about weeds coming up through my mulch. I don't care. I do, it doesn't bother me. And I'll tell you why. If I had mulched it, the whole thing would be that. So I've clearly disadvantaged it. I've created this microclimate. I've created this organic matter. I've created a nutrient cycle. So the weeds come back. Big deal. I'll guarantee you this. In a heavily wood-mulched environment, if you do nothing, and eventually things grow up through to where you can't even see the wood anymore, and they start breaking down, and they grow over the top of it, what comes back will end up being more diverse than what was there before you mulched it. And this is how you deal with this. You go into your mulch, and you pull back little craters, like a little moon crater. Into that crater, you deposit handfuls of compost, And into that compost, you plant the things you want. You plant plantain. You plant. You start little plants if you want to. You plant medics. You plant little clumps of clover. You plant the things you want to dominate your system. You plant herbs. You plant echinacea. You plant narrow-leaf coneflower. You plant black-eyed soup perennial so that you want in that system. And then you don't worry about weeds. Now, if you get a weed that's becoming rampant and taking over, then you go in and you just cut it. And you drop it. And the root's there and it'll come back. And you cut it again. And you drop it. And it's going to come back. And you cut it. And you drop it. And you keep advantaging what you do want to the disadvantage of what you don't want. And sooner or later a stasis is enabled. And that root system can only go without light for so long. So, I mean, that's my approach to it. Um, let's go ahead and take another one of your emails. Oh, real quick before I go, I kind of left off the most important part. Um, there's nothing wrong with going in there and laying down just wood chips and not worrying about the cardboard. Will stuff grow through faster? Yep. And you know what? We're going to sheet mulch right here this week in three areas. And what we're going to do here, we're going to lay down a layer of compost about an inch deep. We're going to lay down a layer of straw about an inch deep. And then we're going to put about three inches of wood chips on top of it. That's it. We're not going to, I'm not even going to try to block what's going to come up because of everything that I've already said. I'm just not worried about it. There's places where I use cardboard. Pathways, definitely. Pathways, I like cardboard under the mulch in a, in a pathway. But everywhere else, I'm not that concerned. Let's take another call. Here's an interesting question. Kind of a gardening one, but not really, because anybody would have to worry about this in their backyard, depending on where you live, what you would find, especially if you have things for critters to hide in, like mulch piles and cinder blocks and wood piles and stuff like that. This is somebody from Minnesota moving to Texas, and it's scary down here because we have poisonous things that bite in Texas. Uh, and we do, uh, certainly more so than Minnesota. Um, hi, Jack. I just watched your year-in-review video. By the way, guys, if you haven't watched that, you should. It's an hour and a half of the property and what we've done in the first year. It, it's pretty awesome. It was produced by Kelly Heron, who is the uh, gentleman that will be doing the video production for Permanent Ethos. He's amazing. You should really check out the year-in-review video. I'll put a link in the show notes. It says, everything looks awesome. My question is, do you get any poisonous spiders or scorpions that you have to deal with? I'm looking to moving around Salina, Texas, and have to start a pro and want to start a property like yours this summer. I know I sound like a ninny, but I've lived in Minnesota my whole life, eh? And uh, the thought of poisonous critters frightens me a little. Also, I've had you had to remove any venomous snakes from your property. 
Just trying to gauge what I'll have to deal with down there. Thanks for your teachings, Jason from Minnesota. Okay, so Salina, uh, my business partner, Neil, I should say really former business partner, Neil, because we don't really do much together now, but uh, he's still a great friend, lives in Salina, Texas. And I'm the guy that knows snakes and critters and things like that. So I would get phone calls from Neil. I'll tell you one that doesn't have to do with venomous anything, but it's a little bit funny. So one day I'm, I'm sitting in my office and the phone rings and I look and it's Neil. So I answer the phone and say, hello, Neil. He goes, Jock, and this is my best British, right, which isn't very good. Jock, how do you get a squirrel out of the yard? I said, Neil, there's a squirrel in your yard? He goes, yes, Jock, there's a squirrel in my yard. I'm like, what kind of fencing do you have? He's like, well, we just have like wire fencing and I guess he crawled through. I'm like, leave it alone, Neil. But how do I get rid of it? I'm like, leave it alone, Neil. And he has three huge Rottweilers. He goes, if I let the dogs out, will they chase it away? I said, Neil, leave it alone. Well, how will it get out? If it got in, it can get out, leave it alone. And I already know what's going to happen. I hang the phone up. Ten minutes later, phone rings. Look down, it's Neil. And I already know what's going to happen. Yes, Neil. Chuck. Yes, Neil. How do you get skunk pee off of a dog? I laughed at him for about five minutes and told him you can try washing the dog in tomato juice and beer. But basically, his dogs were going to stink for a week. And I tell you that story because Neil would constantly call me, Chuck, there's a snake. Is it dangerous? Well, I, I, I don't really know. I'm not there. So you take a picture of him and be like, it's a rat snake, Neil. Oh, okay. And then, like, you know, three weeks later, I found another snake. This one's in the water. Is it dangerous? Um, well, I'm, I'm not there, so I don't know. I need to take a picture. And I'm like, it's, it's another rat snake. Well, this one looks quite different. It's, it's, it's a baby, and the other one was an adult, and, and it's fine. So in, in all of the calls about snakes that he found on his property in Salina, every single one of them was a rat snake, and they're totally harmless. Uh, they will eat your little baby chicks and your chicken eggs if uh, – If you have a chicken coop. So it's something you do have to think about making sure they can't get in. But by the time you have adult chickens, unless it's a really big rat snake, I mean, top of the food chain rat snake, um, if he gets in a chicken coop with adult chickens, they will destroy him. They will absolutely slaughter his ass. So rat snakes got to take care of themselves. On my property with snakes, I have found one rat snake, and it looked to me like either the chickens got to him Or one of the neighbors hit him with a weed eater or something like that. I wasn't a hoe because he would have been dead. And I think he recovered and I caught him. I actually have a video of it on the, on my YouTube channel. I'll see if I can find that video for you. And I set him loose in the woods behind the house and I've not seen or had any problems with him since. Um, when we tore our old garden beds apart, the ones the homeowner had here before us that were made out of railroad ties, I found, uh, one snake out of the whole thing and he was also non-venomous. He was a yellow-bellied racer, and the guy that runs equipment for me, John, uh, we pulled one of the uh, railroad ties out, and out comes the snake, and he grabs a hoe, and I'm like, no, don't do it. It's, it's like, I, you don't kill snakes in front of me unless there's no other alternative. So I pick it up, and he's all freaked out, and I'm like, look, it doesn't, the damn thing won't even bite me. I tried to get it to bite me to show him that they really don't hurt you, and like, without being mean to the snake, it wouldn't, I'm like tapping it and trying to provoke it, and it wouldn't bite. It was like mock striking with its mouth closed. So I also pitched him into the woods and let him go. Um, so that's what I've found here. Now, this is the part where you're going to not like what I found here. When we took apart those beds, there were cinder blocks in all of them. So there was cinder block base with railroad ties on top of the cinder blocks and a bunch of crap pulled in there. 
every cinder block we pulled out, unless the hole was full of dirt, every single hole had a black widow spider. Now, I'm pretty much a live and let live guy. I don't hate black widows in particular. If you have an outhouse, boy, you want to make sure that you don't, you know, sit on one or something like that. But, and if they're in the garage or whatever, you know, because you might grab a thing, they got to go. But pretty much if there's a widow living under a rock, I'm not going to bother. I'm going to let her be. She's a, a spider like any other spider. No, they're not going to buy you and kill you. I killed them, man. We were wearing gloves because of them and some other things. And every one we pulled out, we rubbed them out because there were just so many of them. I have not seen a lot of them this year. I think that was a cold, dark, perfect environment, and I was basically breeding widows. So that's a, by changing what we were doing, we don't really have the problem anymore. Though I wonder how many of them might be living underneath our water tank right now. Well, we shall see. And uh, I'm not really worried about them, though. They are a great pest control. And I mean, think about it this way. A black widow, if it bites you, you do have a problem, okay? But... They're not really a lot more likely to bite you than any other spider. And how many spiders have bitten you in your life? Same with brown recluse. I haven't seen any, but I worry a little bit more about them. Their bite's actually a little bit more damaging to the flesh and things. I was bitten by one in Honduras, and they had to cut a pretty big chunk of flesh out of my hand over it. Um, but eh, I haven't seen any of them. Scorpions, we found one or two. The scorpions we have in this part of Texas are not dangerous at all. Unless you're going to die from a bee sting, you're not going to have any problem with a scorpion. You're not going to like it. You're not going to pick them up and make them sting you. But, I mean, it's going to be like a bee sting. Um, venomous snakes here, uh, we have all of them. <laughs> but I haven't seen many of them. There's rattlesnakes in this part of Texas, though I haven't seen one I saw. A guy called me and said that... Uh, He had a snake under a big box, and it was a rattlesnake, and it was a big rattlesnake. I'm okay, fine. I'll come get the rat snake, and I went, and it was it was a big, big Western Diamondback, and uh, I wish I could tell you that I was so moved by the Disney Animal Kingdom spirit that in my benevolence for snakes, I took this little rattlesnake and like big rattlesnake and coddled him and took him way out into West Texas and freed him. No, I ate him. Because I really didn't have time to deal with it, and I'm like, this is a venomous snake in a neighborhood, so I killed his ass and I ate him, and he was good. Um, I've seen around the ponds and lakes and some of the parks some water moccasins, though 99% of the snakes in the water that everybody swears to God are a water moccasin are Nerodia. They're a green water snake. They're harmless, uh, totally harmless. Um, there are copperheads here in theory, though I've never seen one. Um, there are coral snakes here in theory, though I've never seen one in this part of Texas. And to get bit by a coral snake, you have to want to get bit by a coral snake. Um, so they're here, but they're not widely around. Mostly you're going to find um, Texas rat snakes, yellow-bellied racers, and various garter snakes. And they're totally harmless. They really can't hurt you. They're really afraid of you. And even if you grab one and do everything wrong and get bit a hundred times, it's not really any worse than skinning your knee on a sidewalk. I mean, that's, that's just, you know, kind of my PSA on snakes. Now, there are places in the world, and even in the United States, where there are very dangerous snakes. If you live in Southern California, where there are an abundance of Southern Pacific rattlesnakes, you got to watch out for those. They're, they're quick to strike. And it's a very severe envenomation. In fact, let me say that any venomous snake biting you is bad. 
There's no venomous snakes with training wheels. There's no second chances. One year bit, you've got a serious issue. But if you're going to have a couple, three acres of Salina, you're going to have critters. All right, I'm just going to tell you, you're going to have critters. And it ain't a big deal. Scorpions, ignore. Not a problem. Black widows, wet, cool, dark places is what they like. So either don't create lots of those, or if there are areas like that, understand that it's possible that they'll be there. Learn what the widow web looks like. And you could, once you know, it's the only web that looks like that. Um, don't go out of your way to kill them, but if you get a bunch of them in one place, I'm telling you, mechanical death is the way to go. Don't be spraying stuff, right? Really, you can make things worse by spraying stuff times. Good thick pair of leather gloves, smash, smash, smash. Um, that's what we did with all of them in the, the deal anyway. Um, most of the time, leave things alone, they leave you alone. And don't overthink it. But again, it's about habitat creation. And a lot of things we do to create habitat for beneficial things can attract some critters we're not as enthusiastic about. But uh, I would tell you this. If I'm traveling around the state and I were to come across a king snake of any variety and I was worried about venomous snakes on my property, I would snatch that bugger up and I would release him on my property. And I would do that over and over and over again. Because if you have a high population of king snakes, you are going to have a low population of any other snake, but specifically rattlesnakes. They're like candy to a king. That's why they call them king snakes, because they eat other snakes. And a king snake can be bitten by a rattlesnake and has a huge immunity to the rattlesnake's toxin. And they will crush the rattlesnake and squeeze him until he's dead. And then they will swallow him whole and eat him. So, problem is often the solution. Anyway, I wouldn't get too sweaty about all of this stuff. Uh, though maybe I just made it worse. But I'm giving you the facts, man. Let's take another one. Okay, I'm going to finish up today with a, a really tough one. This is from Kevin in Japan. He calls me Jack Sensei. Sensei means teacher. Uh, also, no, yeah, it really, like, you, you know that from martial arts. Like, if you're a martial arts uh, practitioner at all, but basically it just means teacher. So, okay, I guess I'm a teacher. Uh, do you think the change necessary to bring modern society into line with the prime directive and three axes of permaculture can come about without violence? If so, how? Before I read the rest of it, let me just, for those that maybe don't know of permaculture, what those are. Prime directive, the only ethical decision is to take responsibility for ourselves and that of our children. So the only way we can be ethical in our future is to take responsibility for ourselves and for our kids. Okay. The three ethics are care of the earth, so we need to take care of our planet, because if we don't, we're screwed. Uh, care of people, so that means we cannot have environmentalism harming people. So we have to balance the needs of the planet with the needs of the humans that in inhabit the planet. So we can't say, well, it's just better for the planet if there's like 50 billion less people, so let's kill them. Like That doesn't work. We have to be building systems that care for both the earth and people. And the last is a return, not a redistribution, like some politically motivated ass clowns want to change it to, a return of surplus. So as systems create abundance, some of the abundance must be returned to that system or it will fall apart. So we can't constantly be bringing in outside inputs because sooner or later those run out. So we have to create systems that are self-sustaining. Okay? So that's what he's asking. Can we get there without violence? 
Here's the rest of his question. I've been a listener since the car days and first learned of permaculture from you. For those that don't know, and from 2008 to 2010, I did the show in my car. It is one of the most important concepts I've ever encountered. If these ideas were prevalent, I firmly believe there would be a great healing of our planet and its people. I intend to do my part to make them prevalent in the little grid square of terrain I influence in my own life. Let me say that's awesome. That's how you got to think about it. What is your sphere of influence? I think as much as I can do without coercing or doing harm to others. That said, it's been to I've been to many of the garden spots that made the papers during my years in the Army, 93 to 2007. I've also seen the environmental, societal, and human trauma firsthand. I have seen how effective the short in I have seen how effective in the short term violence is. That is why things are often done, as you say, quote, with the threat of violence at the point of a gun. So when the shift towards permaculture threatens the vested interests of the plutocracy, plutocracy is ruled by the rich, for those who don't know the term, things could get real spotty if it reacts violently. I view these as inevitable growing pains of humanity, more tuition in the school of hard knocks, if you will. I also hold the opinion that the way to help society evolve is to help the individual's of that society evolve one by one. I don't see around it, but I wonder if you did. I would appreciate your perspective on the matter. Thank you for the work in this regard. Very respectfully, Kevin in Japan. Um, P.S. If you read this on the air, please give a shout out to P.A. Prepper, Johnny LED, Johnny Led, and Desert Dog, and the whole Zello crew. So there you go. Shout out to P.A. Prepper, Johnny Led, and Desert Dog. Okay. So, is it possible? Yes. Is it likely? I don't know. Okay. I'm not one of these hippie permaculturists to say, look, man, if we all circle around the tree of life and understanding and and we all like contemplate our navel long enough and roll in the mud together and believe in the unicorn of majesty, like the world will shift and everybody will think like peace and common good for all mankind. I think that, you know, you might as well just spend your whole life smoking dope and believe it's that way, maybe you'll be happier. But it ain't gonna it ain't gonna change reality. Again, to understand this dynamic, we have to accept something that many people have a hard time accepting. They just have a hard time accepting because they think it equals bad. It doesn't equal bad, it just equals reality. And that is, as human beings, we act first in our own best interest, period. Every time, consistently, over and over again, we as human beings will act consistently in our own best interest. Now... Somebody commented and said, well, what Jack's saying is that we're selfish. I did not say we're selfish. I said we acted in our own best interest. You, society and, you know, the, the media and all of the people that want to program your brain have made you believe that acting in your own self-interest equates to selfish. There are people that are some of the most generous human beings on the planet. They give all that they have and more. They're always doing things to help other people. They still act in their own self-interest. Through their own viewpoint and vantage point of the world, they believe that what they're doing is the best thing for themselves. Okay? So, we've established this. If you don't believe me, fine. I, I said the sky's blue and you said it's gray. I can't help you. We're done with You just have to either accept the rest of the discussion or, or not. Okay? People act in their own self-interest. So once we know that, we've, we've, we've said that that is in case the way it is, then we have to understand that the reason people behave the way they do, for good or ill, revolves around their belief in what's in their own self-interest at any given time.
So this is, this is important because it is something that the people in control understand explicitly and the people being controlled tend to never understand. So if I want you to allow me to violate your rights, and I am the government and you are my subject is the way I look at it, instead of I am the government and I serve you, which is the way it's supposed to be, and I want you to now allow me to do something like stick my hands in your pants at an airport or irradiate you with backscatter radiation uh, or, or something like that, that that violates your rights to privacy and to not being searched without reasonable suspicion, then I convince you that it's in your own self-interest by exaggerating the danger of terrorism. And then you allow me to do that. If I want you is a middle-class, hard-working person that pays the majority of the taxes in this country to keep working hard and paying those taxes, but I want you to feel that you're overworked and underappreciated, but yet still get enough benefit out of it to keep doing it anyway. I have to convince you that everybody but you is bad. That everybody that has more money you is the evil rich, and everybody that has less than you do has that less than you do because they're lazy. So then it will be in your self-interest to not want to be like either one of those people And that will keep you where I want you to be. You see how simple this is? Every single bit of societal programming and control is based on the fundamental understanding of those in power that you will act in your self-interest. You will be who you are. I understand the dynamics of the class you've placed yourself into. Because let's face it, folks, most of us place ourselves into these classes by choice. Right? And I, I, I even mean with race. Right? If I'm a white person, I only behave differently than black people and red people and yellow people because I've decided that I must be different, right? True, my skin color is not going to change, and if you're black, your skin color is not going to change. But you know, I've had black friends, and I've been and and you know, I've been a white friend to a black person, and the two of us talking together. If you were if you were not looking at a video, if you're just listening to audio, and you said which guy's the black guy, you wouldn't know. You wouldn't know. So even if you are identifying with a color of skin, you're doing so by choice. Now, that doesn't mean we can't be reasonable and observe a skin color. That guy's white, that guy's black. Just like I'd say you're blonde and he's got red hair. right? We, we have gotten to a place where we've even, because this has been done so effectively, we think that calling somebody black is a slur. Right? You know? It's just ridiculous. Or to call somebody Asian is a slur. How do you know they're Asian? Well, they look Asian to me. I don't know. I'm just telling you. So all of these things are being used against us, and the concept that we will behave in our own self-interest is the, the, the key that keeps the chess pieces moving around the board. I'm going to come back to how this relates to all these other things in a second, but you have to understand this. If you don't understand this, you're easy to control. The minute you understand this, it's like taking the pill in the Matrix, man. Boom, it opens up, and you see it for what it is. And when you're like, oh, that person's bad because they're an illegal alien. You know, wait a minute. What makes them bad because they're an illegal? Well, they broke the law to get here. Okay. Did we set up a system that entices them to come here? Well, yeah, but they shouldn't have came. Wait, oh, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. Okay, so it sucks where he is, and he comes here and his life gets better. Yeah? Uh-huh. And we don't enforce that law at all. We don't do jack shit to really enforce that law. And he knows that. Yeah? Okay. Put yourself in his perspective. What would you do if it was a better life for your family? 
And, and people that, that can't answer that question because they don't want to face the reality. You're the person sitting at home right now with an AR-15 and ammo, and you should have it, that says, if the shit hits the fan, if somebody comes here to steal my family's food, and it's between my family surviving and them being able to get going on to the next mo you know, next part of life and getting through the crisis, I will kill somebody to protect my family. Well, if you'll kill somebody for your family, you'll freaking move for your family. And if you say you won't, you're full of shit. Now, if you say, I wouldn't kill, then maybe you wouldn't. But if you would shoot somebody to make sure your child ate, you would walk across a damn border to make sure your child ate. So we must convince you that's the bad guy. He's not the bad guy. Well, some of them are in MS-13 and they're gang members. Okay, they're bad guys, right? And if you're a gang member going out and, you know, hurting people and shooting people and beating people up and stealing from people, you're bad whether you're here legally or illegally. I don't give a shit. I want you in the same prison hole for those crimes, regardless of why you're here or how you got here. I don't care. Now you're harming somebody else. Got it? Real simple. Right? But we take this fact that you'll behave in your own best interest, and you're pissed. And you're pissed off because you work so hard. And you're pissed off because you're down at the hospital. You see this line of illegal aliens standing in line to get free health care. You don't get free health care. What the hell? I need you in spite of that to go back to work and work hard. So I got to convince you those people are bad. It's their fault. You don't have, and you need to work just a little bit harder to get by because of them. And then you'll do that. And that's just one example. And I can go through every division in people in humanity and show you how government utilizes this to further their control on society. So how do you get to a society that takes responsibility for itself, cares for the planet, cares for each other, and takes surpluses and reinvests them versus squandering them. You wake people up one at a time. You couldn't do it with violence. It could not be done with violence. Violence begats greater violence. You could not enforce permaculture ethics at the point of a gun. It can't be done. You can't create care of people by threatening others. You can't protect the earth by forcing regulation onto people. You have to make them value it. You can't return an abundant surplus to furthering the first two goals with violence because you'll never have a surplus. For violence to exist... Scarcity must either exist or appear to exist. I'm going to say that again. It's one of those things that I say that I didn't know I was going to say that are very important when I hear myself say it. Okay, For violence to exist, and I don't mean, okay, look, there's one guy, he's nuts, and he wants to hurt people because he likes it. Okay, fine. Right? You're about psychopaths. And you're about violence. Psychopaths, even psychopaths themselves are generally not, inherently violent. It's a small segment of a small segment that is the violent psychopath. The person that actually enjoys suffering and pain in other people. These are sick people. They either go in a hole for the rest of their lives or go in a hole for no more of their lives. Either one. But they need to be out of society. If we can fix them, fine. Most of them, I think you can't fix them. Okay? But this is a small segment. What I'm talking about is mainstream large quantities of violence. Violence exists because either there is a scarcity 
and what is necessary for life or a perceived scarcity. And most of the time, we don't have a scarcity. Those in power have created a perceived scarcity. You'd say, well, there's not enough food for everybody. Well, in this country, first of all, there is. It's part of why the country exists and functions and doesn't fall apart. All right? But the reality is we could be producing so much more food just in our front and backyards. If we just planted trees that were productive throughout our country, distributed throughout our country, and all the land that's available to do it, and it's not expensive to do. And if you planted twice as many as you needed and half of them died and you did nothing, you'd end up with this huge abundance of food. So we, we don't have a scarcity of food or the ability to produce food. We don't have a scarcity of money in this country. And it's not because the evil rich have it all and you don't. There's more money in this country than we should have as far as total dollars. That's why the dollar is so freaking weak. That's how it lost 97% of its value. We don't have a shortage of wealth in this country. Oh, I know. It's not properly distributed. If it was properly... No, 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 no. That's not nonsense. Wealth, wealth all stems from natural systems. There's not a single piece of true wealth that doesn't find its source in a natural system. You create video game money if you want to. But if you didn't have the natural systems to build the console, to feed the programmers, that develop the system, you would have no wealth. All wealth is intrinsically linked to natural systems. And we have the natural systems here to create as much wealth as you could ever need, ever, in society. The truth? Most people have a point at which if their wealth goes past it, they stop caring. Again, you're back to psychopaths. Generally not direct violent, indirect violent psychopaths that actually care after a certain number. Let me start naming some numbers to you, and you tell me when you would just say, I don't need any more, in, in U.S. dollars, because that's a number we all understand. One million. Most people would say in today's day, one million is not enough to live the rest of your life and not worry. So I, if I had a million dollars... I might have a great nest egg for my retirement at that point. I might know I can retire earlier than most people do and be pretty happy, but I got to keep working. And if I can make more money, I would. Five million. A lot of people right there are going, I, I can't see that I need much more than that. You know, five percent interest, a quarter million dollars a year for the rest of my life. I, 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 you know. But people said, well, how young am I? What do I want to accomplish? Do I want to do greater good for the world? You know, maybe maybe five million is not enough. Ten million. I'll bet you eighty-five percent of the people in this audience are like, "I'm done. I'm done. I I just, you know, if I'm doing anything that's generating income, it's because I'm going out and doing venture capitalism and angel investing and abundance creates abundance. But I don't really care if I'm ever worth another penny in my life beyond that. And if not, If you're still thinking, I might still want to, you know, build another company and whatever, 50 million. 50 million dollars. Do you care? Do you care about becoming worth more? The answer is no. For most people. If you still do, 100 million. And I honestly feel this way. If, 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 if at 100 million dollars in net worth, 
Not that I would expect that you would just dry up, blow away, and not do anything anymore. But if you really cared about acquiring more at that point, you're in that 2% psychopath range. You really are. In today's world, $100 million, the, the needs, even the wants, are so intrinsically met for an entire human lifetime, it's beyond comprehension to feel the need for more. Not only your needs, but the needs of your children and their children, even with big families, for multiple generations, are done. Why would you need more? And most people would not. Most people fell out when I said five to $10 million. I just, no, I don't need any more. I'd have my place and my stuff set up and... You know, I whatever I did, I would do because I enjoyed it. I just, I'm done. Okay. It's not the money that makes you feel that way. I'm going to say that again. It's not the money that makes you feel that way. It's the knowing that you have the security, the knowing that you're safe, the knowing that your needs are met, The fundamental understanding that for you, scarcity is now gone. And that even in systems of failure with that kind of money, you can put up enough systems of redundancy in place that scarcity for you no longer exists. It's not the five or ten million dollars. It's the knowledge of what five or ten million dollars can do, what it buys. So, in the end, we see that real wealth is made up of, if nothing else, security. Not fake security. Not TSA security. Not the security that one would trade liberty for. But the security of being free, of being to act, able to act in free will, to knowing that you will be clothed, to knowing that you will have a home, to knowing that your children will be fed, to know that... If something goes wrong, you have a chance to fix it. To know that you're not going to live in a box on a street. This is, this is what wealth really is to most people. The ability to live your life on your own terms without capitulating to the demands of others. And most people in that state would live their lives with a thought of, hey, I don't need to damage the planet because you don't feel any danger in not damaging the planet. You don't feel that there's there's no other choice for you. Then of course I have a choice, right? You wouldn't harm people. Why would I harm anybody? Now, you might defend your family. You might harm somebody in defense of another life, but you wouldn't willingly harm somebody if you felt all your needs were met. Why am I going to hurt this person? I don't need anything that they have. They're not responsible for anything that I don't have. All my needs are met. I'm not going to harm anybody. And returning of your surplus. Return of surplus can mean charity. It can mean giving to your neighbor. It can mean giving to somebody. But return implies investment. That's why it's important that we not change the word from return to redistribute. Return implies investment. So as a person that has security, that has wealth, that has quality of life, that has happiness, that has joy, do you know what you want 
other people to experience it. So you end up reinvesting. And this is why some of you, when I said $100 million, said to yourself, I am absolutely done giving a shit what my net worth is, but I am not done acting. Because you're in touch with that. And you're thinking, how much good could I do for the world? And if I ended up with more, so be it. That's the way that it works. I just don't care anymore. And that, that attitude is what we're looking for in permaculture. One does not fear scarcity when one is surrounded by abundance. And we're talking about a system that creates abundance. Now, if people begin to shift to a point where this thinking becomes large enough that it's not just, oh, look, cool, that guy has a garden. We'll do a feature story on how he's uh, feeding children at the local school, and then we'll go on to some other crap, to where it actually starts to, to make inroads into the establishment. Would the establishment push back? Yeah, but you know what? By the time that happens, it's too late. It's too late. The, the, the way to create overwhelming force with permaculture is to remove the word force and create overwhelming results. When you get to a point where this thinking is not just growing food, but engineering the processes of a business that has nothing to do with food. When you get, you get a, and it's going to happen in less than 10 years, a CEO of a major corporation will write a book detailing how permaculture thinking made his company a multi-million dollar going concern. That will happen. That will happen. Somebody will do it. By the time that happens, a mainstream uptake of the thought process takes over. The people in control have a problem. The problem is that the thinking itself is the deconstructor of their model of control. I constantly say permaculture is anti-political. It's not political. It's not politics. It isn't. And the guy that founded it says it's not. What I actually say permaculture is, is anarchist. And it really is. More than it's even libertarian. It's anarchist. The problem is, and I, I struggled this with, with this for years, when you hear anarchist, you think calamity, chaos, insanity, lack of control, no order. That's not what anarchism is. Anarchism, I, I almost think all anarchists should change the word to stateless society. Because society implies order. It's self-organizing. It's I'm doing my thing, and I'd love for you to participate in however you choose to, But if you don't want to, you are not compelled to do so. The only thing you can't do is interfere with what I'm doing. That's it. You do anything else you want. It's not like there's no right to property in a stateless society. These people have this property. Now, how do you enforce it? I don't know. I don't know how we get there. I don't know how we go from, from mainstream libertarianism to minarchism to anarchism. I don't know how that works. I don't know how long that takes. I don't know what the process... I don't care. We are so far away from a basic libertarian society where the state occupies a minimal space that the journey is so long 
that I'm not worried about what it, how do you actually, I don't know. We'll figure it out when we get there. Every business I've ever built, you sit down and talk to people about it at the beginning. Well, what if this? And what if that? What if, you're never going to know because you're never going to do it because you're going to worry about that. So you're not going to get head in the right direction. You adapt, improvise, and overcome as you move forward. Can we get to this type of society without violence? I will just tell you, the only way we get to this type of society is without violence. It either doesn't happen or it happens without violence because it can't occur with violence. It would be like, how do we create an organic garden by using glyphosate and chemical fertilizers? I can't do it. It doesn't, if it was already used and now it goes away and we remediate the soil, yes. But I can't actively use things that are not organic and create organic, right? How do we create permaculture on 10,000 acres of corn? Well, we don't. How do we enact a system of people care, earth care, individual, familial, and community responsibility where abundance is not only created but reinvested to creating greater abundance In a system using violence, we don't. It cannot be done. You have to stay true to not using force on others for this to work. The only use of force is a response to force. And it's only for the purpose of protecting yourself, your family, your property, and your community. It is only a response to other force. And it is only at the level necessary to stop the force that's coming at you. The minute the force is mitigated and stopped and, and, and pushed back, then your use of force has to go away. This is a very hard thing for many people in kind of the hippie realms of permaculture to comprehend. There are people that will take from you, that will steal from you, that will harm you. Some of them are in the 2% of the 2%. The, the maliciously violent psychopath. Alright? Most of them are at the, being controlled as a chess piece by the 2% of psychopaths that run the world. They don't really want to harm you. They have been programmed to a point where they believe they have no choice. This is the only option that I have. It's complete nonsense. Well, I didn't have any choice but to start robbing houses. That guy's full of shit. And, and, and he should face a, a penalty for what he's done. And if he breaks in my house at the wrong time in the wrong place, he might end up with a very severe penalty. He might end up with a free membership in the Dirt Nap Society. But I don't want that to happen to him, and he doesn't either. Why is he breaking in my home? Because he believes that it's in his self-interest to do so. Why do heavy criminal penalties prevent people from breaking into homes? In their head, they do the math. Yes, I might get away with money, but I also might get shot. I might go to prison. I might get beat up. I could go to prison and get gang raped. Um, my self-interest meter is weighing in on the not breaking into a house. Now, the house ends up being worth millions of dollars. There's lots of jewelry in it. It would be easy to fence, easy to move. You know the security system's down. 
It's more likely that you'll get away with it. It's a soft target, a high value. The criminal-minded individual is now more likely to act because it's in his self-interest. And this dynamic plays out over and over in every social issue that's out there. It is the only real driver of action in humanity. Self-interest. Not selfishness. Self-interest. Okay, well, what about the person that says, look, I could do this, and I could end up with $5 million worth of jewels, and they still would never do it. It's in their self-interest not to. Would you do it? And most of you are like, no. Okay, well, then how would you feel if you did? You'd live for the rest of your life worrying that someday, sooner or later, you're going to get caught. You'd feel that anything that gained from that was at the expense of somebody else and therefore wrong. You'd have guilt and stress and fear. And because of that, you won't do it. And because it's not consistent with your beliefs. You believe that it's wrong to do this. So you don't. And you believe that not only it's, it's wrong to do so, but that it's not your only choice. That you do have other choices. How do we get to a society where people care for themselves and each other, take personal responsibility, and use abundance to create greater abundance so that it's always sustainable? The real answer is, I don't know. I don't know exactly how we get there. And nobody does. It's never really been done before. But there was a time when no one had ever walked on the moon before. There was a time when no one could even conceive of a device that would allow a person in Philadelphia to speak in real time to a person in Jacksonville, Florida. And then Alexander Graham Bell created a telephone. Well, we had a telegraph before that, but voice communication from Philadelphia to Jacksonville. Jeez. And now we have the ability for an astronaut in space to communicate to a person on Earth. And now we have a telephone in your pocket that has more computing power than anybody could even conceive of 40 or 50 years ago. At one time, the concept of a computer was ridiculous. A satellite was ridiculous. A GPS was ridiculous. It, it, it can't be done. It's just not possible for a man to fly. It's not possible. For someone to travel across a space the width of the United States in a week... It's not possible. Impossible. Can't be done. But yet we've found a way to do all of these things. And this is why I'm hopeful that we will find a way to move toward an ethically driven society. Our survival's at stake. Most of the other things that I said we did... We didn't need them just to continue to exist as a species. In some ways, they brought about parts of our problems because the massive technological advancements have what created such a, a large population globally, which have created the greater demand on the resources that are available, which has created a greater perception of scarcity, which has exasperated the problem. We did all of these things because we thought it was awesome to do them. We thought it was in our own self-interest to do them. Well, there's nothing 
that would be greater in the interest of our, ourselves as a society than to move toward an ethics-driven society. When you move into ethics, a lot of these questions about, well, who would do this without the government, I just become meaningless. Somebody put a, a post on Facebook. If anybody can find this, because I, I, I lost it. I'd like to repost it, honestly. It was a picture of these women in, like, the old-time swimsuits, right? And there's, like, a guy in, like, a suit and tie, and they're coming on a beach, and he's got a tape measure. And he's measuring to make sure that the swimsuit skirt thing goes far enough down and covers enough leg because it used to be illegal for a woman to show too much leg. And the caption says, without government, who would measure the swimsuits? Man, that's a home run. So let me finish up with, yeah, I think this moves us toward a stateless society and understand what that's really about. It is not to say that that'll happen in my lifetime or my child's lifetime or even their, my grandchild's lifetime. How long? I don't know. But if the goal is noble and if moving towards it is better, then there's no need to pull the goal backwards. In other words, if my goal, go back to finance, is to become worth $100 million dollars, and I'm currently worth $1 million, dollars, guess what I have to do long before I'm worth $100 million? Dollars? I have to become worth two. I have to become worth five. I have to become worth ten. I have to move along incrementally. I'm not just going to go from one to $100 million overnight unless I win Powerball. So having that goal, which is not really a goal I would set, but I can understand how it would work. I'm going to be worth $100 million sometime in my life. If I fail by 50% and I build a, a lifetime worth of $50 million, the goal served its purpose. The goal of moving toward a stateless society serves the purpose of de deconstructing society. I try to live in two worlds. The world as I wish it was, and the world as it is, and how I move from one to the other. And I have found that it's actually very easy personally to move all the way to what seems impossible in your personal life. To have a philosophy of do no harm, use no force against another unless it's in defense of yourself or others. It's easy. Just decide. Done. The way we get there in society is 5% of the population acting this way. The abundance we'll create will be so excessive that it will attract others. And here's the reality for those that would use violence on the nonviolent. No one picks a fight unless they believe they can win the fight. No one. There is no one that picks a fight they know they're going to lose. What about the United States government in Vietnam? The United States government got exactly what it wanted out of Vietnam. Freedom to escalate the Cold War, to spend a lot of money to strengthen the military-industrial complex, and to convince America that we were really at war with somebody that wanted to take over our country. The goal of Vietnam was never to win the war. It was to control the people. They got exactly what they wanted out of it. War on drugs. The war on terror, it goes on. Our government picked a fight when it knew it could win. It just had a different goal than the one it told you about. Well, you get enough people 
that decide to make their own way and let the others follow. And you create a mass of individuals so far outweighing the 2% of the psychopaths, they know they can't win the fight. And then they, they have to adapt. I know that's a long, strained answer with a lot going on. But it's how I think about society. It's how I think about my life. It's, it's how I live my life. And I have no time at all to live my life for another man. I am comfortable with acting in my own self-interest. Because I believe what's in my self-interest is to help as many people as I can. And as soon as you give yourself that permission, it opens up a world of possibilities. I invite you to join me in that line of thought. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. There's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess And we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way